Welcome to We Got Balls, real, raw, masculine sex talk with Chris Inman and Scott Cohn. Chris and Scott both work with men who want to leave their unwanted sexual struggles in the past. They are willing to do whatever it takes to help men get curious about what drives their compulsive sexual behavior. With that said, here we go. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of We Got Balls. And today we're going to talk about um, your performance because dudes, we're men, all right? There's all kind of stuff that we evaluate ourselves on, what work is like, how how far I can hit a golf ball, whether or not I can shoot a, shoot an animal in the woods, uh, what my jump shot looks like. We're performance-oriented guys. And so when we think about uh, what it means to be a man and all the aspects of masculinity, so many times we evaluate ourselves on our performance. What's the biggest way that a man evaluates his performance, Scott? I would say in the bedroom. Oh, I would say in the bank account. So there you go. Oh, okay. It's a little bit different. Yeah. So I think both and are true. I think when it comes to the uh, social and relational uh, big dick contest, it's like, how much money do I have? Am I keeping up with the Joneses? Am I a provider? But when it comes to the heart issues, when it comes to the places that are deep down that we don't want to talk about at parties, it is the bedroom. It's the place where we really struggle to feel like we're man enough in our sexual performance. So that's what we want to talk about today. And and Scott, there's one thing that always stands in the way of sexual performance, and you know what it is. So let's talk about that. What that is would, it? That would be shame. Exactly. And it is the cause of almost all sexual dysfunction. Not, mm. you know, not entirely, because there is some physiological dimension to that, but erectile dysfunction, shame. Yes. And orgasmia, the inability to get, have an orgasm or reach an orgasm, shame. Yes. Um, Premature ejaculation, shame. shame. So, yeah. And when you, when you think about those three things in and of themselves, um, what else is there for me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, when it boils down to it, I think it's really significant to say, that that's how I feel in my body. And we're going to talk about our bodies a lot in this episode. What it feels like in my body is really what's true for me. We've used that quote before from Kurt Thompson. And I'll just say it again, the things that are true in my body. So when my penis doesn't work the way that I think it should, I am stuck in this place of shame. So let's, let's break that down a little bit, right? If we're going to talk about shame, what are, what are we talking about? Because that seems like a really nebulous idea. So let's go back to neurobiology and human development and where shame comes into our lives and what it actually does to us. So shame is an affective primary experience, meaning it generates an emotion, but it's also felt in the body. Mm. And then later on, as we develop language capabilities, we attach stories, meaning, words, language to that feeling that we're having. And shame is part of, it's wired into, hardwired into us in the nervous, autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. So from a developmental standpoint, shame starts to develop at around 14 months of age. So baby's born and a baby grows and starts to 
stand and then starts to toddle. So in this toddling stage, it's called the exploratory stage because children begin to detach from their mother, kind of seeing themselves as part of her, and they begin to identify themselves as a self. And as that self, they begin to explore the world. So they feel, you know, in a, in a relationship with their mother, they feel secure enough to go out and, and explore the world. And if you've ever had children, you see this, they, they'll toddle a little bit and they'll look back at you for approval. And then if you don't show any distress on your face, they'll keep going and mm. right. So that's that exploratory part of the world. And it so serves. If, if I could interrupt for just a second, let me, let me say this. It, we're going to define shame in a particular way. So what you're talking about, Scott, is this concept of I am. It's the beginning of the human experience of saying I'm an individual person. I have my own thoughts, my own feelings, my own experiences, my own story, my own emotions. All the pieces that make me me begin to form at that very young age of, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 18 months, right? That's right. But you, but it's really important to stress that doesn't form on its own. It forms in relationship with mm. other selves. Big so, key. so when, when a toddler starts to explore and let's say they pick up a porcelain figurine and they start banging it on the table because, Oh, it sounds fun and it makes a noise and it feels good in my hand. And mom comes in and in a flash, she shows anger or disgust or both on her face. And she doesn't have to say a word. But if she does say a word, the baby doesn't pick up the word. The baby picks up the tonality and the facial expression of bad. Stop. Don't do that. And immediately there will be a physiological response in the child where they feel a shock in their lower part of their lungs, their upper part of their stomach. It's like a punch in the gut. And the baby will drop what they're doing, drop the porcelain figurine, fall on their butt, hang their head and begin to cry because shame is a physiological response in the body. It serves at an early age. It serves a pro-social function in that it keeps a child safe and also socially connected. So we operate on this. If you, if you think about human neurobiology, we only operate in two modes. We're either feeling connected and safe or we're feeling threatened and disconnected. That's it. And so what shame does is it takes us immediately from that connected and safe physiological neurobiological state, and it shuts us down into a state where we feel collapsed, empty, numb. It's neurologically activating the dorsal vagal branch of the parasympathetic nervous system, which creates a vasal vagal collapse. It's a literal shrinking whoosh, shutdown. So... Just to say, just to say that in, uh, cause, uh, I'm from Alabama and I don't speak those <laughs> words. Um, just to say that clearly it, it, it is a mindful neurological response. All these different nerves that run throughout the body that operate together, that, that click in with my brain as in that formative time to say something is wrong. And like you said, they're shut down. And so that's that's the impact of shame to give some language to it, because, again, language helps us understand what we're experiencing in our bodies. It is the experience of I am bad. Something is wrong with me. I am not good enough. All those words can help us 
give illustration to the experience. But again, I agree with Scott 100%. This is an experience in our bodies that's happening. And it's shut down. It collapses you. So you stop what you're doing. Now, you can see why that's important. If you're playing ball with your child in the front yard, you throw the ball to them, it goes running out of the street, they're going to chase after it in exuberance and excitement, and you're going to say, stop! And you're going to shut down to save their life. Or you do this repeatedly in the home. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do this. And what happens is the child begins to internally model the parent's face and those expressions and that tonality. And so when the the parent isn't present. Let's say you go over to a friend's house and there's a bowl of candy there. When you go to reach for the bowl and run off with it, your mother's face appears in your imagination. You see that and it shuts you down. So it inhibits your behavior in a pro-social way. Because if you go over to people's houses and you take their stuff all the time, they're not going to invite you back, right? So it's protective and it's pro-social in that sense. So there is this good role that this know this containment plays in a child's life because it helps them inhibit their own behavior. However, all right. Yeah. So are we going to talk about the fact that a lot of times that containment is not used to create healthy dynamics, Scott? Is that where you're going? That's where I'm going next. Let's go. So shame becomes toxic when it is used in a way to control a child in an unprincipled manner especially when their normal developmental emotions are expressed Mm. and you're told not to have them. And it becomes hardwired into our neurobiology as a shutdown response to interactions with others. And so shame in a good sense has to be soothed by maternal soothing in a child's life. It has to be repaired, in other words. When you shut a child down, you have to go to them. You have to get down at their level, eye level, so they feel safe with you. And you have to lower your tone and be soft and say, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm just trying to keep you safe. And that immediately repairs them and brings them back up to that place of connection and safety. But if you have repeated chronic instances where shame is used because mom's mad or mom's anxious or dad's pissed off and it's never repaired, this becomes not just a state of mind, but a trait. It becomes hardwired into our neurobiology. And and if you're shamed sexually, if you're playing with your penis and somebody goes, that's filthy, stop that. And that's part of that process then shame is going to attach to your body and your sexuality in those instances and other instances, because that is a very tender area of our personal identity, our gender. Well, Scott, there's two things that are on my mind that I think we need to discuss. One of them is the continuation of what you just said, which is how the shame infects our sexuality. And then, you know, grows up and becomes dysfunctional sexuality or um, shameful body image or whatever that may be, right? But I think we need to go back and recognize the, the role that our parents play in forming shame in our bodies. Yeah. And, and I, I, again, I don't, um, I want to make this very clear. What we do in the context of telling these stories and understanding these dynamics 
is not to say that your parents screwed you up. Because guess what? Every parent screws every child up. We live in a broken world. We're not blaming them. We're stating facts. We're, we're telling stories. We're speaking truly about life experiences. And I'm convinced, Scott, that every time a containment goes unrepaired, as you said, every time uh, uh, your voice is raised or um, there's some correction that is communicated without kindness and some level of nurture, it's truly just the shame of the parent passing on to the child. Because so much about parenting is I don't want to look bad as a parent. Yeah. I got three kids. You've got kids yourself. Or I don't want you bothering me. Or I don't want you bothering me. I want to be left alone. I'm I'm frustrated that I have to deal with you right now. You're an inconvenience. Yes. And that is a comes from a place of internalized, unprocessed shame, which frankly, every human being deals with. The difference in whether or not it gets transferred over to children and becomes um, behaviorally effective, which means it becomes a compulsive or addictive behavior, is the level to which the parent is willing to repair, just what you said, repair, yep. and acknowledge their culpability in that. Because I can, I have gotten frustrated and do get frustrated with my kids. But what I know is so important in my parenting with my children is to go back and acknowledge where I was wrong as the adult, as the um, the dominant force in the relationship as the parent. And so when we talk about these aspects of uh, sexual performance and sexual compulsive, sexually compulsive behaviors, we have to recognize that two things are at play. Number one, maybe your parent was physically present, but could not repair. They didn't know how to come to you and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to raise my voice. And just like Scott said, this starts at one year old. So there's memories that exist in your body that you don't have um, a recollection of. That's right. And it starts that far back and it continues on all throughout your formative years, really until you leave the house and you truly can become an individual that's in charge of your own life. The second harmful piece of this, Scott, and I think we see this more and more, and it's definitely true in my story, was where there was nothing there where you're left alone, whether, whether it's, you know, to care for yourself or you have a emotionally immature or emotionally unavailable parent and they just check out. And so here you have these dynamics, you have harm in your life, you have worries, you have stresses, you have responsibilities that you don't know what to do with as a child. And you're left to figure this out on your own. It's called abandonment, isolation, and the, the research is really telling about this, that it can be even more harmful than abuse when it comes to developing shame, because there is no way for a developing human being to figure things out on their own. Uh, I, I love the, I was listening to a speech by Martin Luther King about slavery, and it really stood out to me about how, um, you know, things work with, with people is we ask people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but how do you pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any boots? And that's what it means for a developing child to try to figure this stuff out. And inevitably when they can't and they default to something is wrong with me, I am bad. Yeah. It's that internalized experience of shame. 
And the, the other thing that's really critical in understanding how, how intensive this can be felt in the body, this feeling of shame is most of these instances where there's unrepaired damaging shame that's used in our lives. If you, if you go back in the stories that you can remember and reconstruct, there's almost all inevitably this really positive, high intensity, emotional valence of joy or delight that in that moment, you get shut down in that moment of exploring the world or exploring your body or, you know, just having exuberant joy, you are shut down in that state and you go from a high to a low. And that is exceptionally damaging because you're expecting one thing and you get this other. And so it's just a huge, like, it's like slamming on the brakes when you're driving a stick shift car without engaging the clutch. It just shears off emotionally what happens in your body. So I heard a story the other day. This man was sexually abused by his father. The context of the abuse, he was 14 years old, so he's entered puberty. Puberty happens to be the time in our lives, other than you know, toddlerhood, when we're most susceptible to shame. Why is that? Our bodies are changing. We become really sensitive. Do I have enough pubic hair? Is my penis big enough? Blah, blah. Am I, whatever. Am I becoming a man? And in the midst of this kind of wonder and curiosity and uncertainty about am I becoming a man, his father takes him to Disneyland. And in the hotel room before they go, he masturbates his son. Hmm. And the crush of the joy of being with my dad, of wanting to know, hey, is my body normal? Am I developing like a man? And looking for that kind of affirmation from his dad. And what he got was this sexual experience, totally not expected. And it just gloms onto the pre-existing shame of I'm not good enough to now I'm sexually bad. Mm. There's something wrong with my sexuality. And so there's always stories of this high valence exuberance that gets crushed and shut down in those unrepaired, really toxic moments. And that's what sets our neurobiology to struggle as an adult with erectile dysfunction, anorgasmia, premature ejaculation. Yeah. And I, th and I think about what you were just describing I think about my own experiences with that and, and even just disconnection in sexual experiences. You know, there's times, um, you know, sex is not always roses and rainbows. Sometimes you get in the middle of it and you feel like, um, why are we doing this? I'm not into this right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I, let's just be very blunt. Uh, when, when there's disconnection in a relationship when there's problems in a relationship, there's times when people have sex because they are trying to use or consume their partner and they, they're having sex because they think it's their duty. Duty sex is, it, it is the worst. Yeah. That's a good way to kill it's, desire. Exactly. Is, is, you know, someone shows up and lays there and plays the sex doll, you know, because, because that's what they're supposed to do. And I know, you know, and I, I won't be specific, but I've heard stories of of situations where it, you know, it feels like you're raping your partner. What a turnoff when you're when you're there having sex, but this person is so emotionally checked out that they're just given that 
I've, I've heard it said before. It's, it's easier to have sex when you're emotionally disconnected than it is to kiss. The kissing is actually a better barometer of emotional intimacy mm, than sex. That's interesting. Because, because you can just turn off the body and just, you know, check out and think about the grocery list or think about the laundry and kind of let yourself be disconnected. And I think that goes back to what we're saying is there's this excitement about an experience. I want to connect with this person. I want to have an orgasm. I want to be uh, intimate with this, with another person. And then there's this letdown, whether it's in me or in her or whatever the dynamic is. And so that reinforces the shame. That experience is something that we have to be very cognizant of because if we have it without processing through what it really means, and again, our invitation in this podcast is to compassion and clarity around our experiences, what's really going on when I struggle with sexual performance? How do, how do I think about that or feel about that so that I can actually seek some repair? Yeah. So um, a really helpful book on this subject is Emily Nagoski's um, Come As You Are. It's written primarily for a female audience, but... Wait, wait, wait. Come As yes. You Are? <laughs> Come As You Are. Okay. It's meant. It's meant to be a double on That is correct. Right? <laughs> but she has a PhD, so this title is perfectly... <laughs> PhD is gives yeah, you a pass. I mean, you I can say you. anything when you have a PhD. So anyway, she's written a book. She's a yep. sex uh, researcher. She works with women who are sexually abused. And so this primary... Mm-hmm primarily written for a, a female audience because females just have as much sexual shame as males do. It tends to get expressed mm-hmm. more in hyposexuality, which is shut down sexuality versus hypersexuality, which is where males tend to go with their, their sexual shame. But if you, if you understand that we, and she, I love how she phrases this because she's using our neurobiology. Everybody has a sexual accelerator, which is mm-hmm. the sympathetic nervous system, the autonomic branch of the sympathetic, the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system is the accelerator. That's how we push on the gas for sexual excitement. And then we all have a break. That's the parasympathetic. That's that shutdown things that make us kind of not got to be safe. Got to stay safe. So she actually has an assessment in the book. She makes it available online. It's a helpful assessment to just everybody to evaluate. Am I more of an accelerator or am I more pushing on the break and understanding where your partner is sexually? Because in, in marriage, you're not going to be the same. You're not going to be. In marriage, there is a sexual pursuer that always pushes the envelope towards more intimacy. And usually there's an emotional pursuer, which is the opposite partner that is pushing more towards. And it's not always the man pushing for the sexual intimacy, by the way. So there's Very these true. cultural myths like men are always ready for sex. Men always want sex. Not, not so. So you have to kind of look at where did my, in my family, if you're, if you're wanting to kind of decode this, this is a helpful tool to kind of look at what am I, what's my spouse, you know, what is my accelerator versus my break and what's my spouse's accelerator versus her sexual break. And then she has some other helpful tools. It's, it's a good book. I highly recommend it, but understanding that this is hardwired in you. It's not just what you're thinking when you're having sex. This is actually Again, it's occurring in your body and your body knows these things before your mind's ever figured them out. So if you're having problems Mm. with orgasm, if you're having problems with erectile dysfunction, you can't get it up or you can't keep it up. um, Your partner could be having problems reaching an orgasm. It's 
it's worth taking the time to sit back and be curious and kind toward one another's bodies and say, what is my story around shame? What is my story around my sexual shame? How does this kind of develop in my life rather than trying to just muscle it through in the bedroom when things aren't working well? Just stop. Have the conversations. Be kind and curious with one another. And couples don't do this because there's a lot of shame around this. And yeah. so, well, it goes back to that. Am I enough? You know, if I can't keep an, if I can't keep an org, uh, if I can't keep an erection, if I can't um, last longer than a few minutes, because obviously with, with a woman, uh, it, it takes longer than a few minutes to have an orgasm. And so if you're trying to, you know, make sure that you both uh, come to use that phrase, I don't have a PhD, but forgive me. <laughs> you are. If you're trying to, you know, both both get there, um, and you 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 can only last a few minutes, it makes it more challenging. It's not impossible; it just it makes it more challenging if people. Well, but creative. but also, think- only fifty percent of women can orgasm through penile intercourse, so you're going to have to do some other things, right? And again, mythology, like. Where did we get this? We get it from pornography. The minute I whip my erect penis out and put it in a vagina, the woman's screaming an orgasmic pleasure. That doesn't happen. Well, and let's let's break down the reality of it. Is that intimacy on an emotional and a physical level is far more complex than we want to admit. We've been taught in culture that, like you just said, if I find a pretty girl and she is into me and we strip our clothes off and hop into bed, that it's going to be fireworks. It's going to be an amazing experience. That's just not true. And so intimacy takes time. Intimacy takes vulnerability. Intimacy takes patience. And intimacy takes curiosity. What do you want? What are the things that turn you on? And frankly, guys, we short circuit the intimacy process a lot of times in our thought, fantasy, and uh, pornography lives. When we are using porn and fantasizing about past experiences or people that we've seen elsewhere, we are using the energy that is designed to be given to our partner. And let's just be honest, it's more difficult to, to use those energies in a, in a romantic, committed relationship. It takes a lot of work. This shit takes and work. We've all been in the situation. Well, at least I have. I'm, I'll speak for myself. How about this? I'm in the midst of being intimate and I have an intrusive thought. Something from the past or something I've seen in pornography intrudes into my thought life. And rather than just talk about that, I try to push it out of my mind by going, no, I can't think about that. No, I can't think about that, which reinforces the thought. And pretty soon I'm caught in this vicious cycle and now I'm out of it. So the more I can stay present with my body and not go into a state of shame, the more I'm going to be able to be in that emotional and sexual experience with my partner versus the disconnection that's going to occur if I start to fantasize just so I can get an orgasm because I don't want to look bad. Right? Right. And so there's a lot of components in this. Let's, let's address a couple of specific things, Scott. So when you're having erectile dysfunction because you're looking at too much porn, Let's just be compassionate towards that. You're looking for a connection. You want a connection that's easy to get to and on demand. And so you go to porn and you masturbate and you have an orgasm and you, you bond to that emotionally, you bond to that physiologically. And so that's what arouses you. And so a real live 
person who may or may not be as attractive to you as this ideal plastic version of a woman online is, and you get in that, that situation and you, you want to be connected, but you haven't done the work and you haven't saved the energy for desire for this experience with your, with your partner. And you now have reinforced the shame around your sexuality. Yes. So that's a cocktail, dude. That's going to get, you know, you want to talk about, you know, whiskey dick. That's going to give you some serious whiskey dick in an emotional sense. Because you you cannot get your get your body to go along with you on what you think it should do. It goes along with with nature, with the with the processes that you have enacted in your body. And I hear me very clearly. I am not saying stop looking at porn so you don't have erectile dysfunction. That's what no fap, and that's what church people say. I am in a different world completely. I'm saying be curious. What are you really wanting, my friend? What are the things that you really want to experience? Is it worth the time and effort and patience and curiosity to find it over time? I can tell you I've had long seasons of abstinence from my from my spouse when we were struggling. And I've struggled with porn when, when, when that was going on. But one of the things I was very intentional about when we got back together and started trying to become intimate again was to turn off the faucet of false intimacy as best I could. It wasn't perfect, but it was definitely diminished greatly. And I struggled with erectile dysfunction the first few times we tried to have sex after we had not had sex for many months. And it was shameful, but I could be vulnerable with my wife and say, this is what's going on. I just feel a lot of shame around what I've done and what we've been going through. And the, I feel like a failure as a man and, and get really vulnerable. And you want to know what's, what was some of the hottest sex of our right lives. after you've had those conversations. Yes. 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 I've been there, <laughs> been there with you. Not, not in the same bedroom at the same time, but in that same room. Right. Yeah. All right. Just to clarify, <laughs> we're friends, but not that good. Um, I've been in the yeah. same situation and I'll say to my wife, I'm feeling shame because I'm losing my erection and I'm afraid that you're mm. going to say he's not that into me. And then we're going to go on this whole mm. cycle and I just need to talk about it. So Scott, one of the things that that I'm also thinking about as as we kind of wrap things up is, um, how how do we address the shame? You know, th- this this shame thing that's living in my body is like, does it ever go anywhere? What what can I do to to be intentional, uh, to to show some kindness there? Yeah, it's it's not going to go anywhere unless you engage it. So here's some effective tools that you can use to engage shame. One is write about it, right. Mm. Write out a story or journal about my experience with shame and in particular, how shame attaches to my sexuality. What is my story of sexual Mm. shame? So look at your life through that lens and just tell your story about, you know, my body, my penis, my ability to perform sexually. How does all of that get kind of commingled with with shame and write that out and do that? numerous times and the the research on this is when you write about a distressing experience like for four consecutive days or every monday uh for the next four weeks for about 30 minutes and you you detail the facts about what i'm experiencing the emotions i'm feeling how this has impacted me in the past how it's impacted me now and any associations that come up when you write in that manner 
that can actually discharge a lot of the distress that you're feeling around that particular event or experience. So that's a helpful tool. So just to be clear, not only how I'm feeling shame in my body now around sexuality, but also where may I have felt shame in my body in the past and where maybe did that begin and just invite some curiosity around that right, experience. Right. right. And, and tell the story okay. of here's how shame entered my yeah. sexual story. Um, you can then, if you want to take it even further, shame, because it's a social experience, it's a social affect. When you share your stories of shame with other safe people, it begins to bring down the emotional intensity of shame in your body. So when I can tell you, hey, Chris, I've had problems with erectile dysfunction, or I've had problems achieving an orgasm, or I, I had, you know, I have a, a friend that told me that on uh, when he was having sex with his wife one time, she shamed him sexually for taking too long. And he struggled mm -hmm. with premature ejaculation from that point on. And mm -hmm. so to be able to engage that story with another man and cry about it and how it had damaged his sexuality and, and to receive kindness and care in the midst of his shame was healing. So telling that story or telling those stories to save other people, save other friends, and then keep doing that until when you engage those moments of shame in your sexual story, you're not feeling the intensity of the shame in your body anymore. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's do this live and I want to model it for the guys. So, um, Scott, I'm going to tell you a, a thing that I'm, that I've struggled with and let me tell you how I feel about it before I'm sharing it. Um, this is something that for me, uh, I have, I've wrestled with for a, a few years, just getting older is part of it, I think, but also maybe fitness issues. But when I say this out loud, it feels like there's something wrong with me. And I don't, I don't want to say it. I don't want to speak about it. And so I'm curious um, what your experience is of me saying this. And if you share this with the guys and as you reflect back to me, what you're hearing, we can kind of process through. So for me, um, I, I used to be, you know, sexually, I could probably orgasm. I mean, when I was young, I could orgasm like multiple times a day, like everybody can. Right. But now I'm in my forties. So now it's probably every two to three days. So if my wife initiates sex and, it's not been that long and we start having sex and I don't thankfully don't have a problem with uh, erections, but I do have a problem with having orgasms as it takes me much longer. And we'll get to a point where I'm just like, I feel defeated. Like I'm, I'm not man enough because I'm not having the orgasm that I used to could be able to have. Um, what does that feel like in your body? Where do you feel that? I mean, I think for me, it's, it's definitely, um, <laughs> it's in my genitals. It's, it's frustrating because I'm like, I, I, I want there to be something happening. And so there's a tightness in my groin area, but also emotionally, there's a tightness in my chest, which is where anxiety usually lives mm -hmm. for me. And what about in your stomach? Do you notice anything in your stomach? Yeah. I mean, top of my stomach, bottom That's of my That's where chest you're feeling. Kind of where so just notice that, just notice that, mm. because that is that fight flight response and it makes it very difficult, not 
not just to get an erection, but then to get to that place of relaxation where you can orgasm. Just noticing the tension in your body. We do, we do tend to carry a lot of tension in our pelvic floor. And mm -hmm. so when that fight flight response gets activated, that area clenches up like literal. Mm -hmm. And so if you can just mm -hmm. notice, ah, uh, and then, you know, I think the message that you're hearing, right? I'm not, something's wrong with me. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel that when you're responding to me. Um, I definitely feel cared for and, and. But, but in the like moment it, where it's happening, you're saying to yourself, something's wrong with me. Yeah, of course. But even in sharing that, I think it's more important at this point because it's happened. It's done. That, that's done. I have to repair that. So when I'm sharing that with you right now, the admission of that this has happened is like reinforcing for me something is wrong with you. Yeah. Okay. So um, let me tell you what I felt in my body. Just yeah. um, a tenderness in my heart area. Mm -hmm because I've been in that same situation and there's a sadness that our bodies are aging and they can't do what they could do at 21. Mm. And it's okay to sit with that. It's kind of sad that our bodies age and we don't feel mm -hmm. as powerful as we used to feel. And I can just feel that. And I can also acknowledge that I can approach my body with some tenderness and care because my body is aging and uh, that's, that's how things go in the, the fallen world. And so mm -hmm. being mad at my body, frustrated with my body, not going to help. It's okay, mm -hmm. body. It's okay. You're not 21 mm -hmm. and you can still perform and it, it's okay to just feel like you're not doing really well right now. You're okay. Mm. because it's normal. You're yeah. just like everybody else. So, you know, to have that, I feel that compassion for my own self in this and you, and that's what's freeing. Mm. And guys, that's what we want to invite you to. We want to, um, be curious and kind towards our bodies because that's where the shame is going to heal. And I think if we try to think our way through it or read our way through it or listen our way through it, it's just not going to happen. We need these human experiences, just like we were harmed in relationship. We need to heal shame and relationship. And Scott, that was a great example of kindness toward yourself and vicariously to me in my story, in my own struggle that made me feel less ashamed. So thank you, my friend. For thank you. For us. And guys, uh, we want to continue to be curious. Reach out to us if we can continue to support you and help you walk through your shame. Uh, you can check out previous episodes of the podcast or check us out on YouTube Shorts or Instagram or TikTok or all the various platforms and catch little clips of what we're talking about because we want to support you and help you grow and heal and put the um, emasculating, um, uh, young experiences of sexual compulsion behind you and move into the man that you are meant to be. So Scott, thanks for being with me as always right here on We Got Balls. And so do you. Take care guys. Bye. 
Don't forget to subscribe for more episodes. You can connect with Chris at PornFreeMasculinity.com and with Scott at SuccessfulMen.com.